Hi, this is Jim from Safety Wars. Before we start the program, I want to make sure everyone understands that we often talk about OSHA and EPA citations, along with some other regulatory actions from other agencies, legal cases, and criminal activity. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Proposed fines are exactly that, and they are often litigated, reduced, or vacated. We use available public records, news accounts, and press releases. We cannot warranty or guarantee the details of any of the stories we share, since we are not directly involved with these stories, at least not most of the time. Enjoy the show. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. This is Safety Wars for Monday, March 20th, 2023. We had a special program today. This week, my schedule is not being dictated by me, being dictated by circumstances. So we're going to have some pre-recorded programs. We're not going to be uh, releasing them live on Safety FM. We're just going to do it on the podcast. So today, I bring you a special guest. Last month, I had the privilege I guess we could call it a privilege of interviewing Christopher Walter Moncton, third Viscount Moncton of Brenchley from England. He is a British Lord, documented, credentialed, everything else that goes along with it. And he's going to be talking about his views on climate change. We went to the 15th International Conference on Climate Change sponsored by the Heartland Institute and I interviewed a number of people there and he was more or less the de facto head of the climate change movement from his point of view so there's a lot of stuff going on today especially with climate change today I I was holding back on these interviews until we had an appropriate time to go and uh, discuss them, to talk about them, to release them, and whatever you want. So I wanted to release these when other climate change reports are being released. So, for example, the IPCC is like the big one, Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change. They issue a lot of reports over the years. They're more or less a meta report, meaning that they get data from all over the place and they try to put compile it into a report. Uh, as part of my graduate uh, school studies way back in the day, I had to read one of their reports in, their, in, in its entirety. It was uh, roughly about 3,000 pages. I had to buy the book because those are in the days when they didn't put these things up on the internet for free. So it was a large expense for graduates student, obviously. So what happened today as far as climate change is concerned? This is from CNBC. World's top climate scientists issue survival guide for humanity call for a major course correction. The latest report from the UN's Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, this IPCC, provides world leaders with a gold standard summation of modern climate science. 
I'm going to point out to this. The article doesn't say this from Sam Meredith from CNBC, but it's their view on climate science. There is another view. And it's the first comprehensive report from the UN Climate Panel since the 2015 Paris Agreement. Today's IPCC report is a how-to guide to defuse the climate time bomb. It is a survival guide for humanity, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said on Monday. So those are the headlines there. Now you're going to say, well, Jim, why are you doing this? Opportunities come up where you can talk to the heads or the de facto heads of movements. What we're about here on Safety Wars is not only fighting the safety world that we normally do in the workplace, maybe in our communities and everything else, but it's also what we have to bring people together on all this stuff. We have to have understanding. We have to have dialogue. There's a lot of people out there that are not interested in having dialogue. There's a lot of people out there that are not interested in working together. There's a lot of people out there that are not aware that there are other points of views. And maybe if you learn another point of view that's legitimate from credible people, and this gentleman is credible, the uh, Lord Moncton is credible, someone who's been involved in not only the climate change issues, but also was a member of the Margaret Thatcher administration. Yes, Margaret Thatcher back in the 80s, who had was able to connect a lot of dots for me from things that I had uh, heard and I have read and the whys and the wherefores and everything else. As everyone knows, based on our February 10, 2021 episode, uh, um, my, my interview with Imogene Salva of One Star Away is communism. As everyone knows, 12 people in my uh, family were killed by communists in the Soviet Union. A lot of my family had to live in communist Poland. I've The horror stories from my family and other people's families and living under these regimes is, uh, I wish I could say it's atypical, but they've had typical experiences here. And he goes into that in our interview. This is go. I, I was debating: Do I do this a two-part interview, one-part interview? I'm just did one-part interview with very little editing here. I mean, like very little editing. You're getting the like the raw stuff. You're getting an organic conversation here. You're getting the view from the other point of view. People say, "Well, maybe you should give equal time." Well, I'm going to borrow a phrase from another radio talk show, this is equal time. Remember, we're all about working together, being peaceful, being unified, coming to understanding. I'm against, and I hope I could say most of the people out there are against all this tension that we see in the world, all this hatred, all this cancel culture and everything else out there, it's not getting us anywhere. It's actually causing bigger problems. And what I want to do is give you the other side. I sought out the def- one of the de facto leaders of the other side. My hope is that we try to ask questions, realize 
that there is something else that might be going on out here in the factual world, not the conspiratorial world, behind the scenes. Maybe I'll change your mind. Maybe your mind will be changed. Maybe you're going to be saying, well, maybe I should question what the narrative that we're given. We do this all the time here on this program because we see that darned safety triangle, right? That everybody knows right, right, once you've been educated is Guvno. We've seen that zero accident sign out there and all these safety statistics that we know don't help the situation. We see antagonism uh, from, by safety professionals against the workforce. We see all these incentives and everything else going on. Right, And we've tried to dispel some of those things here on this show and on the Safety FM network in general. And no, we're doing for safety from a different point of view here. Well, here we're doing environmental safety from a different point of view. That's what we're doing. And as my Bible says, maybe some of you other folks, it says that blessed are the peacemakers. That's what we want to be our peacemakers here. So without any further comment, I'm going to give you our interview with Lord Moncton. Good morning or evening, whatever time you're listening to this, I have a very special guest here on the podcast, Safety Wars. I have Christopher Moncton, the third Viscount Moncton of Wrenchley. He is also known as Lord Moncton. Is that correct, sir? That's right. And in future, when you interview me, will you be kind enough to go down on one knee, wear white gloves, and touch your forelock, and then you address me as my lord. Would you be so gracious as to allow me to address your lordship? And if you do all that, we'll get on just fine. <laughs> but actually, everybody calls me Christopher. Christopher. So yes, do just call me Christopher. Okay, Christopher. Mm. Uh, well, this is what I always find with people of your position. You're always on a first-name basis with people rather than the official titles. Well, the British Empire did not succeed by force. Force was very, very rarely used. And considering the, that we, at one stage, ran a quarter of the globe, and we did so with very, very few troops, it was done precisely because we are trained from birth to see every individual as an individual of no less worth than ourselves for a rather interesting theological reason. Right. which is that the Almighty has three powers, or faculties, right. as they are known to the theologians. The first is, of course, the power of creation, the creative power. The second is the relevant power here. It's the conservative power, which is a member of the conservative party in Britain, right. I've always rather enjoyed, and that uh, in that sense we think that God is on our side. And the conservative power is the power by which, through a continuous and active exercise of his will, he keeps us in being, each of us, from moment to moment, for as long as he chooses to do so. And therefore, when I look at you, I look at somebody who, no less than me, is kept in being by the continuous will of no less than the creator of the entire show. I think that is a very concise and apt description of what our roles are on safety wars and as health and safety professionals, you have to look at someone along those lines, not as an adversary, not as anything and I, like that. That's quite right. And I've always thought that a lot of the political troubles that 
are now very evident in the world and the, the ancient divide is always between the totalitarian and the libertarian factions. Right. That's always been the way. It's either totalitarian on totalitarian or right. totalitarian on libertarian. What you don't ever get is a war between libertarian countries and libertarian countries because the people won't stand for it. Right. And so uh, on the libertarian side, which is where you and I both are, we do not believe that dictators should lay down on any subject that which we should believe. And there's a theological reason for that too, because we are made in the image and likeness of the Almighty. And that likeness to the creator of the universe, no less, is chiefly in our souls. And again, there are three faculties in the soul, in the Christian, and indeed in the Jew Jewish understanding from right. which we received all this. I mean, nearly all of our theology comes straight and unamended from the Jews because they'd been thinking about this for thousands of years before we had. And so these three faculties of the soul are the memory, the faculty of reasoning, and the will. And if you're a totalitarian, you say you may not use your faculty of reason, you may not use understanding, you may not think about anything rationally, you must just accept the party line. And that is entirely against the characteristic which chiefly distinguishes us from the beasts, and that is that we have a soul, and that characteristic brings us closest in likeness to the divine. So in our comment, I had a conversation with you or me and another gentleman uh, before this, about yeah. 10 minutes ago, yeah. How does that, that's a perfect basis to talk about climate change, I think. And exactly. you have two, side, two sides here. Yes. You have one side, which is, I believe, your side, and then you have the other side, which is very much command and control. It's totalitarian. totalitarian. Only one view is permitted, and the totality of the population is required to adhere to that one view. And I can give you an example of this. I was with a former president of the Marylebone Cricket Club, than which right. there is no more establishment figure than you possibly hope to meet, and his wife, who had been the front-of-house lady at one of the swankest uh, restaurants in, in West London. So you know, these were both establishment figures. And I happened to mention in passing, in a conversation about something else, what I call the climate rubbish. And they both immediately stiffened. And this was during COP27. We were in England, but right. the COP27 was yeah, going the, on uh, in Sharm el Sheikh. So that was, that was actually going on at the right. time. We were in England, but, but uh, having this conversation. But so... The former president of the MCC rounded on me and he said, how dare you suggest that all the governments in the world assembled at Sharm el-Sheikh are wrong and you are right. Is that really what you're saying? And I said, yes, it is. <laughs> and he didn't know what to make of that. And so he said, but how could you? say that all these scientists, 97% of scientists, are uh, wrong. I said, oh, I don't say they're wrong. I just say they don't believe what you're told they believe. I said, when that 97% of scientists survey was done by a group of communist researchers based in Australia, right. and there were some from America and was one from the UK, but they were all communists, 
because we were able to penetrate the intranet by which they were talking to each other when they were putting this paper together. And they were saying, we're going to make up this figure of 97% because that's the figure we want everyone to remember. And we will do this because we want to destroy the West. And if we can get the West's energy to be disrupted and shut down and made expensive and unreliable, then everybody will ship their businesses out from the West into the communist countries that we favour and which are paying some of us, and then it will all be fine. So that's what they did. They published a paper saying that there was a 97% consensus among 11,944 papers published in the peer-reviewed journals of climate and related sciences in the 21 years 1991 to 2011. And they said 97.1% of those papers had said in terms, in their abstracts, that global warming was chiefly man-made over recent decades, or words to that effect. Right. So after three weeks of bullying the lead author of this uh, paper, who is a communist who is prone to show his totalitarian tendencies by wearing Nazi uniform from time to time. Yes. I mean, uh, they're a very shoddy character. Um, he uh, eventually disgorged the list that he had himself marked up to show how they had ranked each of the 11,944 papers, an enormous list, in a very irritating comma-delimited format, which modern computers can't handle directly. So I had to write a special program to read this wretched file down bite by bite and work out how many of those papers they had marked as agreeing with the consensus proposition as they had defined it, which is no more than that recent warming was mostly man-made. Two things to say about that. First of all, there's nothing in that proposition that says that the recent warming was or could become dangerous. That's not part of the consensus as they defined it. Secondly, when I counted it, I thought I must have misprogrammed the computer because it said that out of those 11,944 papers, the authors of the paper claiming... 97% consensus had marked only 65 papers, which is a 0.5% consensus. We then read those 65 papers, and of those, only 41, 0.3% of the 11,944 had actually said in their abstracts that recent global warming was mostly man-made or words to that effect. So this was simply a lie, and there's no other word for it. And so I uh, did the math and then was, was contacted by a very eminent professor who would later go on to be, under Donald Trump, the head of the U.S. Global Climate Change Research Program. And he said, I would like you to join me as the author of a paper on this consensus stuff because I had actually done, you know, I'd got the list and done the counting, which the other authors hadn't done. So I supplied that and helped them with the writing of the paper as well. It sailed through peer review at the Journal of Science and Education and was duly published only a few months after the original bogus paper inventing this 97% consensus figure. And most of you listening will have heard of the 97% consensus paper because Mr. Obama, for, for one, said, there you are, this proves that global warming is real, man-made, and dangerous. Of course, there was nothing about it being dangerous in the in the paper at all. But Mr. Obama just thought, well, I'll add that on, and we'll keep the you know the Communist Party line going. But you won't have heard of the paper that came out uh, a couple of months later, saying actually the whole thing is made up, and here is the proof.
Why do you think that is? A lot of there are a lot of uh, views on this, but they're only promoting one view. The reason for this, the reason for this, is um, a technique invented by Goebbels in the Nazi era before they actually took over the country, and they wanted to silence all opposition. So the way they did it, because they weren't in power, so they couldn't round them up and shoot them or lock them up as they did when they were in power. So what they did was to make it absolutely clear that anyone who was at all successful in speaking out against the fascist party line on any question would have their reputation thoroughly, continuously and completely trashed until nobody would ever listen to them again. Now when the Russians came in and we hang back from Berlin and allowed them the honor of taking the Mitte district where all the government buildings were and that's where the Reich's propaganda ministry was in Mauerstraße, it's the largest building and office, uh, uh, largest office building in Europe at the time and we bombed one wing of it but the rest of it with all the records was still intact. The Russians found this Rufmort technique and then they suddenly understood what many historians who don't know of these records didn't realize that that's how the Nazis took over in Germany. Everybody fell silent. I remember my mother-in-law who had been in Germany and Austria at the time of the Kristallnacht where all the Jewish shops were smashed and their windows, you know, caved in and so on. She was there and she said she couldn't understand why nobody in Germany was speaking out against this. And she had not understood the power of Rufmort in making people just feel that they don't want to go there because it's too much like hard work and I've got a life to lead and so why should I take the risk? And that's how they did it. And exactly the same technique is now being used on anyone, particularly in journalism, but of course people like us who do our own scientific research on the climate and find that the whole thing is essentially nonsense. Um, we have it done to us. They had huge fun with me just before I was due to take part in a debate in, I think it was 2010 or thereby, in uh, Australia on live television against the head of a communist front organization called the Australia Institute. They always have these nice innocent sounding names, these communist fronts. I knew it was a communist front for various reasons we needn't go into. Um, so I was quite intrigued that they were putting a communist up against me. They apparently had tried to find a scientist, but there were two problems with that. One, most of the scientists were communists, and two, they knew I knew too much, and they weren't willing to fight, face the embarrassment of having r rings run around them by a layman. I, so actually, I actually had a similar experience with that. Mm. But let me tell you what, what happened, just because it was very funny. They realized they were going to lose, because they realized the communists they had chosen knew the party line, but he didn't know why it was the party line. He couldn't answer me on scientific points. So they thought, right, what do we do? So they got hold of the communists in London, and they said, what is the way we can do most damage to the reputation, Rufmort again, of Moncton? So... Two days before the debate was due to happen, the clerk of the parliament, who was a communist at the time, had been approached by his fellow communists and they said, what can you do? The clerk of the parliament, the senior official in the House of Lords, wrote a letter ostensibly to me saying you are not to go around calling yourself a member of the House of Lords. Because you're not. You see. So this letter was not sent to me, it was sent to the press. So that was how we knew it was political. And so when the debate happened, only two days later, 
and it was in the press club in Canberra and all the press were there and the TV cameras were on and it was being broadcast live. The very first question after we'd each done our initial speeches was from some ghastly young communist journalist who jumped up and said, oh, Lord Monckton, I'm not even sure whether I should call you Lord Monckton because the clerk of the parliament has written this letter, blah, 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 blah. So I said, ah, so from that remark, I take it that you know even less about the arcana of peerage law in the United Kingdom than you do about climate change. So what I'm going to do is to prove you and your fellow communists, including the clerk of the parliament, wrong by producing an official document that attests to my status. And that document, you will be familiar with, it's called a passport. And I gave my passport to the chairman of the meeting. And all you have to do is read out the words in that box. I have it right in front of me here. Viscount Monckton of Brunchley, Christopher Walter. There you are. And a Viscount, I said to this idiot of a communist journalist, is a lord. He's a very rare and very special kind of lord. There are only 29 of us. So you are in the presence of greatness but since you have not come here to do what everybody else has come here to do and talk about the climate, sit. And he sat. And I went on, even on the admission of the left-wing press, to win the debate handsomely. So their technique had failed, but they still try it on. Uh, there's a communist who lives next door to us in um, the West Country. And he wrote to the clerk of the parliament, said, I've seen his notepaper, and he's using the symbol of the House of Lords, which the Queen gave only to the Lords, and you should stop him. And the symbol of the House of Lords is a portcullis, which is the, the drop gate that protected a castle from being invaded. It's, it's wooden slats vertically and then horizontally joined together with metal studs, sliders either side, and chains. And that's known as a portcullis. And it's a heraldic charge that first came in, if I remember rightly, in 1445, when the Beaumont family adopted it as their emblem. And they adopted a portcullis, or which is a golden portcullis, portrayed in gold, with chains wavy. So they had this sort of wavy chains. And that was when the portcullis, which is a generic heraldic charge, anyone can use it if they want, first came into use. And as it happens, I had known a bit about heraldry in my youth, because my father was keen on it, and I studied it a bit, because I knew it would make him happy. And he had shown my heraldry notebook to the Duke of Norfolk, who is in charge of the College of Arms, which is the centre in London, in Victoria Street, where all the coats of arms are registered and drawn and circulated, and the proofs of nobility are, are, are laid down. And so the Duke of Norfolk was so fascinated by this that he offered me the job of one of the junior heralds, which was called portcullis pursuivant and I declined it because I thought I had other interesting things to do shall we say and but so when I thought well I, I might as well adopt a symbol of my own I thought well I have the portcullis but I can't use the royal crown because that's for royalty and I'm not royalty I am related to royalty right. I'm the Queen's seventh cousin twice removed on the wrong side of the blanket via the second Duke of Portland but um, I could use the Viscount's coronet because I'm one of 29 people in the world entitled to that device. So I put the Viscount's coronet in place of the royal crown. So when this communist locally wrote to the clerk of the parliament whining, 
the clerk of the parliament wrote to me and said how dare you use this thing which has been given exclusively by the queen to parliament and the use of the the portcullis surmounted by the royal crown so i wrote to him and said why don't you consult Garter, King of Arms, who's the head of the College of Arms, in charge of all the heraldry in this country, instead of shooting your own ignorant mouth out about it, because you don't know what the heck you're talking about. I said, that's a Viscount's coronet. Nobody else uses a Viscount's coronet surmounting a portcullis. I am therefore free, should I wish to do so, to use that emblem. As the press found out when they, several years ago, when this first happened in Australia, they consulted the College of Arms and the, the, they looked it up and they said, well, nobody else is using this. It's clearly not the royal crown. It is clearly a Viscount's coronet. And therefore he is fully entitled to use it. So I said, there you are then. And by the way, since you're still trying to pretend I'm not a member of the House of Lords, here is an 11-page legal opinion that was offered to me and supplied free by a solicitor and a barrister in the group of, of, of lawyers in London specialising in peerage law. They were so horrified about what your communist predecessor, who got fired for writing that letter, had done, that they provided me with this opinion free. And I won't summarise the 11 pages of history of the peerage that it goes through, because right. this guy was a formidable expert, but what, he, what it did say at the end was, and therefore the Viscount Monkton of Brenchley is, as he says he is, a member of the House of Lords, and he is fully entitled to say so. I said, if I hear a single word from your office again, about whether I'm a member of the House of Lords or whether I'm entitled to use what the uh, clerk of the, uh, the uh, Garter King of Arms has said I can use as my emblem, I will circulate this 11-page opinion to the press and you will look even more idiotic and communistic than you do now. Go away. And I heard nothing from them again. But this constant attempt to tear down the reputations of those of us who've done diligent and years of research to show that actually there are things wrong with the official storyline. This is done to all of us. I thought I'd give you that example because it's quite a no, nice story very, of what they do. It's very important yeah. how we heard that story because in our industry, the safety industry, yeah. we deal mostly with yeah. this, uh, industrial safety. Yes. And uh, I've worked with a couple of firms uh, yeah. from your area. Yeah. Uh, that's a running thing where they try to take you down. Yes. Uh, I have heard you've heard of him, I'm sure. Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals. Absolutely, of course I have. Yeah. Another communist. Yes. I think then they try it on politics. Yes. Mm. Mm. They also try it in workplaces also. Oh, They're yes. Not necessarily communists, like you're saying. Believe me, I'm the most anti-communist person there is out there. No, I, the reason I use the word communist is that I use it not as a careless insult of some right-wing foaming revolutionary. Right. No, I'm using it because when the communists found these records right. of this Rufmort technique in the, the records of the Reich's propaganda ministry, within a month they had established a directorate of the KGB called the Desinformatia Directorate, the Disinformation Directorate, to do the same to communists outside Russia. They didn't need to do it inside because they were already That's in control. Right. We had one established here in uh, mm. 2021. Yeah. By Joe Biden. That's right. And so this disinformation directorate, its sole job initially was to trash the reputations of anybody who spoke out against the Communist Party line. One of the reasons why I originally worked out 
the climate scam had been captured by the communists and actually the KGB specifically was that this technique began to be used on all of us by the far left. It is a communist technique now. You know, they, they adopted it, hook, line and sinker from the Nazis and they began implementing it. And they did, and I've actually got a signed copy of the book by the head of the directorate who was, he, was, he ran that directorate for a third of a century from 1945 until 1978 when he came out to the West and told us everything. He was the most important defector we ever got out. And I remember going in you know, with my British military mission card which is a vile coloured bright orange with a ghastly photograph on me on it through Checkpoint Charlie and back out again and of course they weren't allowed to stop you because you had your British military mission card but this was the most important defector that ever came out and he told us exactly how they were thinking now he came out before they had actually adopted the climate change thing but he was able to tell us that they had done so because he was still in touch with many people inside Russia with whom he was friendly and who would have done the same as him if they dared. Um, and he said that what had happened was when we defeated the miners' strike, which was run by a man trained in Moscow and paid by Moscow to, to call the strike against Margaret no, Thatcher. Uh, no, 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 this was, 19, uh, seven, this was 1984 to 5. Yes, that's right, uh, Margaret Thatcher's time. Uh, and so we defeated that strike. It's a fascinating story in itself. But that made the Russians rethink big time. They realized they could no longer work through the trade unions because we'd found out how to defeat them on that. And we used a very unusual technique which was invented by me, which worked fine. I was brought into number 10 to do it and fixed it and uh, the strike was beaten. And they were really shocked by that because they'd, they'd done a previous strike in 1974 against the Edward Heath's government and they had brought the government down. But they couldn't do that with me in 10 Downing Street because I had worked out the strategy which eventually defeated the strike. And I didn't actually have to implement it. I recruited somebody else to do that. And he was a friend of the Prime Minister who was a property magnate called David Hart. And he, at my suggestion, drove 29,000 miles in his Mercedes that year. And he gave copies of a cutting from the Times explaining where the miners' leader, who was a communist called Arthur Scargill, and I'd been put alongside him in 1974 to work out what his intentions were, and I knew we were going to have a strike. Um, so he had this cutting from the Times which explained that Scargill had been trained first at the uh, Patrice Lumumba University of Terrorism in Moscow in 1979, two months after Margaret Thatcher took office, having sailed there from um, Tilbury to Leningrad in a Polish freighter and then he got a sealed train to Moscow from there like Lenin before him, he was met by the communists like Lenin before him, taken to the Patrice Lumumba University, three weeks there and they realised he was a cut above the usual sort of communist grunts who blow themselves up in Arab countries. <laughs> so they transferred him to the Lenin Institute which the Russians fondly thought, we thought, was the library of communism. It was actually the place where terrorist leaders around the world were trained we knew this, so they didn't know we knew this. And so he spent five months there. Then he got an Aeroflot flight back to Paris, changed planes and got onto a British Airways flight to London in the hope that nobody would notice where he'd been. And we'd been following him all the way there and at both institutes and all the way back. 
So we knew the lot, we told the Times, they ran a very discreet little column by one of their columnists. They didn't make a news story of it. We said, we just want it there without too much of a fuss made. And they said, what for? And we said, we can't tell you, but will you please just print it? Which they did. So then we, we took that cutting and I gave it to Mr. Hart. And he then took that cutting and I said, your job is simple. It's to spend as long as it takes until the strike is over speaking to each mine worker individually who is on strike, all 100,000 of them. That's your job. And you are to give them a copy of this cutting and say to them, the leader of your union is not representing you, he's representing Moscow. He's representing a hostile foreign power that wishes to do harm to this country by exploiting the mine workers. And he said, but they're all communists. They'll never buy that. I said, no, they're not. I said, I've been down the pits. And they're not communists. I used to go down them as a lad because it paid a lot better than journalism in those days. <laughs> and, and, and so I went down to have a look, you see, and I got to know some of the miners. And it's just fascinating. I mean, it's a squalid conditions in the mines. I mean, it's not the fault of you know, the, the mining board or anything. It's just deep mines for coal are very dirty, nasty places. Yes, yeah. So my respect for the mine workers kind of shot up when I actually went into a mine and had a look and I thought, crikey, doesn't matter how much they're offering to pay me, I'm not going to do this living, you see. Um, and so, you know, these were the heroes of labour to me, the mine workers, they really were. And it was tragedy that they'd been captured by communists and then brought out on strike, which should never have happened to them because it destroyed their industry in Britain in the end. Um, so we managed to make sure that all the miners knew that this um, strike was organised and paid for by Moscow. And as a result, David Hart was able to report to the Prime Minister. He reported directly to her, not to me, just straight to her. So I didn't even know what he was up to a lot of the time. I just let him get on with it. And in the end, he identified the Leicestershire and Not Nottinghamshire miners as the ones who were going to break the strike. And they, he then paid millions of his own money to run an ad advertising campaign in all the major media saying, come on, Arthur, to Mr. Scargill, give us a ballot. Let's have a vote on whether we carry on with this strike. And Scargill eventually had to give in and give them a ballot, and they voted him down. And that's how we won that. And the Russians then had a big rethink because they couldn't use the unions anymore as their way of destroying industry. So then they said, how do we target the en energy industries of the West? Because they realized that energy was the thing. That's why they'd done minor strikes. Because right. if you can make energy unreliable and expensive, you destroy the entire basis for a Western economy. And all the big businesses, the steel works, the aluminium works, they all move out and they go to Russia, to China, to India, to Pakistan, all of them led by communists. And they are profiting every time we shut down yet another industry that can no longer afford its electricity bill because of the cost of all these stupid windmills and solar panels. That's, I always wondered about that whole story. So that's that. where it came from. That's where it came from. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, they then changed their tack and having, having realized they couldn't do it through the unions, they then, literally in 1985, they had a meeting at the end of the miners' strike in Moscow and they said, right, we're going to have to capture the environmental movement and do it that way and then object to every new power station and eventually try and get the existing ones closed down. And so within months of the end of the strike,
they had changed their focus and they'd moved into capturing the environmental movement. And I was telling this story to Patrick Moore, who was one of the founders of Greenpeace, who gave the opening keynote speech today, and a wonderful speech it was. And he's an old friend of mine, and he is not a communist, and he never was. He was a hippie. But weren't we all when we were lads? You probably weren't, but I was. And he I was a hippie. And he had, yeah, well, there you are. So you were a hippie too, and you know, free love and power and flowers and all. What is it called? Anyway, they, they, all the phrases, Glastonbury and all that. So he was a hippie, but he was no communist. None of them were communists. They they actually cared about the whales and the fish and the trees and things, which we all care about. If we're honest, that's coming back into focus. We're on from New York, New Jersey. There you are. So, so you know, this is what they were. They were genuine environmentalists. So when, and so I told him this story, and he said, and when was it they made this? Decision? I said early in 1985, as soon as the miners' strike failed. They had a meeting of the KGB headquarters, Lubyanka, and they said, right, we're going to have to go after the environmental movement. She said, do you know when I had to leave Greenpeace? I said, no. Late, he said in 1985 because the communists moved in I said yep it all joins up you see. I mean, Unbelievable story. And, and how do I know this because of course Pachapa had come out to the west so when I gave a speech at a Heartland conference uh, some years ago now in which I mentioned Pachapa and his role in telling us how the KGB operated this disinformation directorate and how they had captured the, uh, the climate issue when it arose. They didn't invent the climate issue, let's be clear. It was scientists, it was actually, it was a communist scientist who um, first brought it to sort of political attention. It was a guy called James Hansen at right. NASA. It was very, very far on the left and has been arrested dozens of times for protesting about the climate. And, you know, it's not for me to say whether he is handsomely paid by the communists for doing so, but uh, he's certainly very willing to do so, shall we say. And he wrote a paper in 1984 which set this whole climate change nonsense running because he had borrowed some mathematics from a branch of physics which was outside climatology, of which he had no knowledge, and he fatally misunderstood it. And everybody, including me in my first ever peer-reviewed paper on the climate, copied this error. Because we thought, you know, NASA, uh, he's somebody you ought to know, in charge of the Goddard Institute of Space Studies, he ought to know a thing or two. But he didn't because he'd borrowed it from somebody else's end of science without understanding. You know what he'd done? He'd forgotten the sun was shining. In his calculations, he'd left out the fact that the sun is the dominant influence on the climate. <laughs> and the result of this was that it, by leaving the sun out of this particular calculation, which is how much warming would you get by the end of this century if we go on with emissions as they are growing, uh, if you forget the sun is actually providing most of the temperature, then it multiplies your prediction by three, four, or five. Take away that error, and the warming we'll get by the end of the century from now is less than one Celsius degree, which is harmless. And that's why they are so desperate to silence me, because they know I've worked out the, the error that they've made, and I've got the mathematical basis for it actually in that satchel with me here. 
and I'm handing it out to sufficiently qualified people here so they can review it for uh, me. Yeah, I, I believe I read that yeah. uh, num- a couple of years back. Well, we, 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 yeah, there's, there's a lot of new information. Well, We've now yeah. nailed it down and, and, you know, knocked it out of the park, whichever way you want to put it, good. because what we've done is we've discovered why it was that people, even our own side, weren't buying it. It was that the original drawing of the circuit for a feedback amplifier, which works just as it does in the little box of electronics that you're doing here, as it does with the climate. Any dynamical system which changes its state over time uh, and has feedbacks in it, the same feedback rules apply. So you can actually build an electronic circuit to model the feedback behavior of the climate. So we did that, and we proved that you have to include the sun, because otherwise all the calculations are just wrong, and you get this hugely exaggerated uh, notion of how much warming we might cause. So we then drew the circuit and sent it to a national laboratory of physics. I'm not allowed to say which, and I'll tell you why not in a moment. They then spent several months building their own circuit, checking everything, and running the tests we'd asked them to run. And all of the tests, so within a tenth of a Celsius degree, were exactly as we had predicted the result. We'd done it by mathematics. We just wanted them to confirm it by actually building a feedback simulator, which they did. And they said, yeah, this is right. And we said, great. In the original contract that I drafted for you, I stipulated that we would be publishing uh, this result in a peer-reviewed journal. And they said, oh, but this result suggests that climate change isn't a problem. I said, correct. Because it isn't, is it? And they said, well, no, it isn't. But we don't want to say that. I said, but it's not a question of you saying that. You've just got to say, yes, feedbacks behave as Moncton says they behave. And they said, no, we're not doing it. I said, well, I'm very sorry, but you undertook the contract on that basis. And, uh, you know, we exchanged letters, which are, I think you will find when you consult your lawyers, binding upon you. So they went away and sucked their thumb for a bit and came back. And they said, ah, tell you what we'll do. You can use our report, but you mustn't say which laboratory it was, and if you do that and don't use our name, we won't charge you a fee. <laughs> but that shows you... But that, that just shows you how even senior laboratory staff are feeling the threat that the communists now impose on them. You're not allowed to deviate even where the science is absolutely clear, as it is, you know, this really is a, a huge error that lies at the heart of this entire climate change nonsense. If Hansen had got this right first time, climate change would never have taken off as an issue. That single mistake. And you can actually, if you have a pocket calculator and you're listening to this, we can actually do this in 30 seconds on a pocket calculator. Take it out and put in the following figures. First of all, 28 Just put that in your pocket calculator. 28 is the number of Celsius degrees of what's called the natural greenhouse effect. That's the difference between the temperature that would exist on Earth if there were no greenhouse gases in the air at all at the outset and the temperature that was actually measured in 1850. That was 28 degrees. So you put that in your calculator. Now, the direct warming caused by those greenhouse gases was 8 degrees degrees before you make any allowance for what's called feedback which is a knock-on additional warming caused by the fact that as the air is warmed say by the greenhouse gases directly it can hold near exponentially more water vapor which is itself a greenhouse gas 
and that's called feedback amplification. You warm the atmosphere directly and then the atmosphere changes its composition in such a way by holding more water vapour that the original direct warming is amplified by what's called a knock-on or feedback amplification of the warming. So, you know that it was 28 degrees was the total natural greenhouse effect including feedback. Now, 8 degrees was the direct warming by the pre-industrial non-condensing, that's not water vapour, greenhouse gases. Divide 28 by 8 on your calculator. And what do you get? Well, you get 3.5 as your figure. A multiple of 3.5. And that means that if you have, let us say, 1 degree of direct warming from doubling the CO2 in the atmosphere, or from all the various influences of mankind from here to the end of the 21st century. They're about the same amount of what's called radiative forcing. One degree. Now, you multiply that by 3.5, and you would then expect to see 3.5 Celsius of warming by the end of this century. That's how they do the sums. But they'd forgotten the sun was shining. So you've done it their way, 28 over 8. Now what you have to do is to add the sunshine temperature that would prevail even if there were no greenhouse gases to the top and bottom of that fraction. So you had 28 over 8, which came to 3.5, which was your multiple. Now what you've got to do is to say 260, which is the sunshine temperature, plus 28, which is 288. That was the temperature that actually subsisted at the temperature equilibrium in 1850. There'd be no real change in global temperature for about 80 years after that. So it was an equilibrium, all right. So 288 at the top, because you've now added 260 to your 28. And at the bottom, it's just 260 plus 8. So now what you do is you divide 288 by 268. Do it now, and you'll get an answer approximately 1. 0.075. So if you multiply one degree of direct warming by the end of the century by just 1.075, you're going to get kind of 1.2, actually about 1.3 degrees. That's not three degrees. It's only 1.3, of which less than one degree is left because we've already gone through a fifth of the present century. So suddenly this apparently enormous problem disappears the moment you remember to take into account in your elementary calculations the fact that the sun, like it or not, is shining, except, of course, in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> so, my question, where, where do we go from here? We continue to educate, that's obvious, which is what you're doing with these events and all your other media and everything else that you're doing. What can we do as regular people, regular, the regular Joe, as we say? Right. The first thing is, don't vote for any political party that buys in to this climate rubbish. Because you've now been given, admittedly, a very simplified form of the evidence that this whole thing was based on a catastrophic error. And those of you who are scientists and know how to check these things can get access via your university libraries to any scientific paper you want. I challenge you to find even a single one of the tens of thousands of scientific papers that has ever been written on the question of how much global warming we may cause. This is known in science as the climate sensitivity 
question that mentions at all the fact that the feedback mechanisms that act upon the climate, chiefly the water vapour feedback, respond not only to the changes in the original temperature that are caused by natural and anthropogenic greenhouse gas direct forcing, but also to the sunshine or emission temperature, as it's called, of 260 Kelvin. You will not find, as far as we can discover anyway, a single paper that expresses very clearly, if at all, the fact that that is the case. This is the serious scientific error arising chiefly by interdisciplinary compartmentalization. You have your control theorists in their own little box and you have the climate scientists in their own little box and never the twain shall meet. And then somebody tries to borrow something from control theory, but he's a climatologist. Climatologists on the whole are not terribly good mathematicians. There are one or two who are, but most of them are hopeless. And he didn't know what the heck he was doing. And he, if you read the paper, it's jumbled and confused and he just got it wrong. It was then copied four years later by a guy who had gone public and said we have to invent scare stories so that people will believe us on the climate. He then found that this feedback scare story was one that he could repeat. He produced another jumbled paper, completely getting it wrong. And then in 2010, NASA had another go at it, and two papers were produced, 2010-2013, embedding the error into the sort of theology of climatology, and they've been getting it wrong ever since. And we, two years ago submitted a paper explaining this to a journal whose editor was known to have said publicly that there was no conceivable argument against what I will call the Communist Party line on the climate. So we sent it to him, and he threw it straight back saying it's too long. So we shortened it, sent it back. Said, here you are, we shortened it to the length you said. Please, will you now consider it? No reply. We prodded him several times. No reply for two years. So... I'm going to use a technical term now, so if you are ladies, please cover your shell-like shell ears. Climatology knows perfectly well that we're right about this, and they are shitting themselves, because when this gets found out and they can no longer use their mates in the largely communist-dominated media to conceal this, the truth is going to come out, and when it does, that's the end of the climate scare. The whole thing was founded on this silly little mistake. And the research that we've more recently done has shown how it was that the mistake came about. It came about, as I say, in this paper in 1984. But I contacted Sir John Horton, who was the head of the IPCC's climate panel. And for those of you who haven't got into this climate thing, the IPCC, or Intergovernmental um, Panel on Climate Change, they are the sort of international, I call them a communist front organisation, which is probably not entirely fair to them, but now that you've heard some of the background, you'll see why I use that term rather more freely than you might otherwise have expected. But this outfit claims to do science, but is actually a propaganda outfit. What I noticed, I read the, uh, when I was in graduate school, I read mm. the entire report uh, yeah. for, uh, and compared to the, uh, at the beginning they have, the way this is set up is that they have a main document, yeah. and then they have two documents, one uh, with a chart, 
Yeah. For lack of a better word, executive summary. Yes, they call it the summary for policymakers, and essentially they write that first, and then they make they write the scientific bits to make it fit. And, well, and the thing is, what I was able to do was I was able to read the summary for policymakers, yeah. and then found out all the information that they actually left out in the report. That's right. Which was this whole uncertainty thing. And well, there's a great deal wrong, but I actually contacted directly um, Sir John Horton, who was the, uh, he's now Mary in Heaven, he was the, the chairman of the science right. panel of the IPCC, so he was in charge of the, the science document. So I said to him, look, I'm a bear of very little brain, I'm a layman, I don't quite know what I'm talking about here, but it seems to me that you say that the direct warming, if we double the CO2 in the atmosphere, or equivalently, if we go on emitting all the various greenhouse gases we're doing at the current rate uh, of growth up until 2100, there will be only one Celsius degree of warming, which kind of isn't really a big deal. But I said, you're then saying that actually your central estimate is three degrees. Can you please explain the difference between one degrees and three degrees? How do you get there? I do not understand. And he said, oh, well, you see, it's because of feedback. And I said, yeah, but do me a calculation. So he did me the calculation for 1850 that you've just done on your pocket calculators. You were diligently following this podcast. And he told me that you therefore multiply the one Celsius by 3.5, which is 28 over 8. And that's how you could tell in 1850 what it was. And you would multiply one Celsius degree of direct warming by CO2 since 1850 by 3.5 to get 3.5 Celsius degrees. And he said, well, for caution, we round it down a bit and we call it 3. That's our best estimate. That's how we did it. He told me. He said, that's the basis for it. So I said, right, I, I at that time... You know, 28 over 8 does equal 3.5. I couldn't see what was wrong. It was only a few years later when a control theorist sent me a textbook of control theory and said, read this. And he himself hadn't spotted the error. But I read it, and chapter 3 of this book uh, called Feedback Amplifier Design by, uh, um, what's his name when I was, uh, Hendrik Wade Bode of the Bell Labs in New York, published in 1945. It's the standard textbook on elementary control theory. And there was a diagram in Chapter 3 on the feedback amplifier. And I looked at it, and I saw this thing called the input line. And I realized that all the feedback diagrams that you see in the climatology paper didn't have an input line. There was no... They weren't taking into account the fact that the sun was shining. I saw it at once. I thought, blimey, that doesn't look right. So I got in touch with the controls here that sent me the textbook, and I said, look, have you seen this? He said, oh, that's not an error. I said, yes, it is. He said, no, it isn't, because you can do it by differential analysis. You can leave out the sunshine and still do the calculation, which is what you did originally on your pocket calculator. 28 over 8 equals 3.5. He said, you can do that. You can leave out the sun. I said, yeah, but if you leave out the sun, you don't realize just how little feedback effect there is for each Kelvin of the entire temperature. It's tiny. It's so tiny, in fact, that there's no way from the data that we can measure in the climate that we can get those data exact enough to be able to tell what the feedback factor actually is. We can't, you can't therefore do this by feedback analysis at all. And yet the IPCC and its documents, if you take the IPCC's uh, third, let's, say, let's take the fifth assessment report in 2013, the word feedback occurs 1,100 times in that document. Their whole basis for trying to say it's going to be a big warming and not a small one is because between two-thirds and nine-tenths of all the warming they predict doesn't come from the direct effect of the greenhouse gases. It's this indirect knock-on additional effect 
called feedback response. And that they think is big because they forget they've got to divide it not just by the direct warming from greenhouse gases, but also by the huge direct warming from the fact that the sun is shining. So this huge error, uh, and we also found out why they had thought you could do it by leaving out the sun. It's because when in the normal control theory applications for which control theory was first formalized and its mathematics worked out, Forgive me. What they did was they were able to leave out the base signal, as it's called, the main input, because it was tiny in comparison to the feedback signal that they were using to um, change the signal-to-noise ratio in a telephone circuit to enhance the signal and, and diminish the noise. And you do that by putting a massive feedback into the And the feedback is many orders of magnitude, in other words, 10 to 100 times bigger than the input signal. So if you leave the input signal out in that circumstance and do a differential feedback analysis, you're not going to get much error. So they do that. And so the climatologists had copied it without realising that in the climate it's the other way around. The input signal is two orders of magnitude bigger than the anthropogenic CO2 signal. And so they were applying this same method, not realising that it was totally inappropriate. We only discovered this recently when I was talking to a control theorist. About it. He said, oh yes, of course, we use these huge feedback signals. I said, ah, but in climate it's the other way around. He said, bingo. That's, that's, that's how they made the mistake. One of the points that I make on the program, and I, we don't specifically deal with climate change per se yeah. all the time, where I live up in New York, New Jersey mm. area, 20, and this is a fact, mm. uh, 25,000 years ago, the shoreline was between 90 and 120 miles out to sea from where it is today. Yeah. All right. And as a scientific fact, mm. the, glacier, the glaciers ended right where I grew up, Yes. In Middlesex County, New Jersey. Which is quite a long way south of where the, the glacier line is now. Right. You know, up so in northern that, Canada, sort of thing. So yeah. that's the benefit, mm. or however we want to call it. Mm. SUVs, yeah. carbon emissions, yeah. everything else going mm. on out there. The sea levels rose, yeah. the glaciers receded. Yes. And this has happened multiple times because in South Jersey and that on Long Island, New York. I mean, you're too layers, young You're too layers. young to remember, but if you right. go back 11,000 years and you compare yeah. the sea level now with then, it rose over the last 11,000 years by 400 feet. Right. Now that, as Ian Plymer, who's a, a, a very uh, eminent emeritus professor of geology who's here at this conference, right. likes to say, that's climate change. Yeah. <laughs> he said, yeah, 400 feet, that's sea level rise. But the late Tom Weissmuller, who sadly can't be here because he died earlier oh. this year, the last piece of work he did that I heard of, he presented to a conference at the German parliament that I attended. And he had allowed for the fact that when these glaciers you talk of that came all the way down to New Jersey, as I think you call it, <laughs> um, uh, had receded, the land bounced up because they no yes. longer had the weight of two miles of ice on top of it. Right. And so you got what is called isostatic recovery or rebound. Right. The land actually comes up and the sea level goes down <laughs> in comparison with the land. And he had therefore corrected all their estimates of, of sea level rise for the actual rate of uh, isostatic rebound, which you can measure by a combination of tide gauges and satellites and taking the difference between them. So it's quite complicated what yeah. he did. But he found that sea level is rising, but it's rising at a rate 
of 1.1 millimeters a year which is kind of one centimetre per decade, which is 12 centimetres, which is, I think, under three inches, or I think it's actually under four inches, over a whole, the whole of a century. Now, and he'd done this very, very carefully, and that accords with the result of another very great scientist, now Mary in Heaven, called Professor Niklas Myrner from Sweden, who had written more than 660 papers on sea level rise. He was the world's expert on it. And I once asked him, I said, what is the likely sea level rise from anthropogenic effects over the whole of the 21st century? And he said it's between two and six inches. Exactly the bracket that, that Weissmuller yes. independently arrived at. And so we know, therefore, that sea level is rising so little that if you were wearing spats, you wouldn't even get them wet on the top of your shoes. It wouldn't happen. So, you know, that's the big scare is sea level, and it's basically not going to happen. And it's one of the many phenomena that are not going to happen because the amount of warming that they predicted is not happening. Because one of the things my team did, having realised they'd made this mistake, is to say, well, if, we co if you correct the mistake and you do the math the right way, and you assume that the feedback regime stays the same as it was in 1850, how much warming would you then predict? And it comes out at not at um, 3.5 Celsius, but 1.3 Celsius, of which uh, you know, less than a Celsius is, is left to go before you reach the end of this century. So that's not a big deal at all. But then we thought, can we calibrate this result by correcting the error by also checking how fast global warming is actually increasing. They predicted in 1990 on the relevant scenario, which was scenario A in their report, the business as usual scenario without the world making very much cuts in, in CO2, that there would be 0.3 Celsius of warming for every 10 years after 1990 up until 2100. So we looked up how much warming there has been in the third of a century since 1990, and it works out at 0.13 Celsius per decade. Multiply that ten by 10, because that gives you the final warming from doubling CO2, it's broadly equivalent. 1.3 Celsius, exactly as we had calculated by correcting their error of feedback mathematics. So then, we did it a third way, by taking their data for the five variables that are input into uh, a calculation called a Monte Carlo simulation, yes. where you do a billion trials, allowing for the uncertainties that they publish in each of the five items of data that go into the equation. And it will tell you the range of possibilities of how much warming we might get. And it's between 0.9 and 2 Celsius, and the mid-range estimate where the peak of the Gaussian distribution comes when you do this, 1.3 Celsius. So in this four-page paper that we have written on this, which has now been with a learned journal for two months, and they haven't thrown it back yet, and they would normally throw it back in a week, this particular journal, all this information is to be found, all in four pages. It's all summarized and condensed and referenced so they can see exactly where we got all our data from, and it's their data we're using. We're not making up our own. We're saying, okay, you say there'll be this much warming. This is how much there's actually been. You're saying there will be you know, this value of radiative forcing. Okay, we'll use your interval, <coughs> and then we'll just do the calculation. 
And we don't have to use feedback analysis to do that calculation because the energy budget method, which we use to, to, to do this Monte Carlo distribution, is the method which was recommended by one of them in as far back as 2002. And it has consistently produced far less warming than this bogus method they used by getting the feedbacks wrong. And so we can now show by all these different methods that uh, 1.3 Celsius, less than 1 Celsius, therefore, by the end of this century, by which time the fossil fuels will have run out. There won't be enough of them. They'd be so expensive by then that hardly anyone will use them. We'd have had to find another way to generate electricity or we're all going to be in huts again. And wind and solar isn't going to hack it. And the reason for this is that one of our team there's a guy called Douglas Pollock. He's a Chilean engineer. And he got in touch with me a couple of months ago. And he said, I've discovered a very interesting thing. He said, you know the nameplate capacity of a typical windmill is the capacity in ideal weather for that windmill. That's known as the nameplate capacity. That's what they say. This is a, an X gigawatt windmill. That's what they're talking about. So he said, in any given grid, the weather won't be ideal. And in the European grid, typically you'll get 25% of nameplate capacity realistically generated in an average year. Maybe sometimes 35, sometimes 20, but average 25, thereabouts. So he said, that's the case. And he said, what I've discovered, he said, is that the capacity factor, the share of the theoretical maximum capacity that is actually deliverable because of the weather on that particular grid, is equal to the maximum penetration factor, which is what percentage of the total electricity generated by all sources on that grid can be contributed by wind and solar panels without wasting generation, wasting the capital cost of installing too much of it, and destabilizing the grid. And he said these two apparently unconnected numbers are identical. And I said, I'd better look at the equations, and he sent me ten equations, and so I boiled them down to three equations, and yes, it was correct, and then I boiled them down to one equation, and it was correct, but people still weren't understanding it. So I then woke up one morning and redid it, and I said, ah, equivalently to what you're saying, and much more easy for ordinary folk to understand, is that the excess generation that you get by trying to bolt extra windmills and solar panels onto a grid that the member doesn't need any of them because it has to maintain 100% thermal capacity in case the wind drops and the sun goes down, which, as any sailor will tell you, happens most evenings. <laughs> Suddenly get nothing from yeah. the, the windmills and solar panels. So you then have to um, go and get your electricity from thermal sources, chiefly coal and gas. Otherwise, the lights go out. So, in that sense, wind and solar are an unnecessary and cripplingly expensive and destabilizing addition to the grid. I say destabilizing because in Britain, where we are 16% above this maximum limit beyond which you really wouldn't want to put any more of these windmills and solar panels on your grid because you'll just waste the money, we had to spend four and a half billion dollars just in 22 alone on stabilizing the grid because of this extra grid capacity that's over this limit that our grid didn't know about and nobody in the industry knows about this and so i said well actually you can redo the equation so that it, and it will become i think as famous in climate science as e equals mc squared in uh, quantum physics 
And it's this, relativistic physics, I should say. And it's this, E, the excess capacity of renewables on a grid, is equal to N, the nameplate capacity that you have been foolish enough to install on the grid, minus D, the mean hourly demand on that grid by its customers. So that is the end, E equals N minus D, of wind and solar power. If you go above that, it will be entirely wasted. What that means is that on a typical northern hemisphere grid with a capacity factor of 20 or 30 percent, not more than 20 or 30 percent of all the electricity you generate can come from wind or solar without prodigious and cripplingly expensive um, wasted generation or do not generate orders, which they do in Ireland, or they pay them to turn off the turbines, as they do in Britain, for it's only taxpayers' money, so why should they care? And, or you can put in battery backup, or um, you can put in hydrogen generation from the electrical power that's surplus. But if you do that, the cost is astronomical. And so what this means is you can't use wind and solar to solve the problems of the climate. It is physically impossible to do it. This limit is an iron limit. You exceed that limit and the waste is so prodigious that you destroy your economy utterly in doing so. In Germany, they are the worst in the world. They are 83% above the maximum economically sustainable capacity of wind and solar on their grid. And they've got such terrible problems that they're actually having to pay Denmark to stop generating off its windmills. They're connected interconnected right. with interconnectors to Denmark so that they can stabilise their grid. They've just put too many of these things on. And of course, the more of them you put on, it doesn't alter the capacity factor, which is still only going to be 30%. So you try and generate more than that, and it's just wasted. Yes. So uh, it's... it's so it's absolutely staggering, and, and it's staggering that this very simple equation, E equals N minus D, to which I boiled this all down, and it's all equivalent to all these complicated equations that came before, that is the end of the debate about whether we can do anything about this, because you can't do it with wind and solar. You could if you built lots and lots of nuclear stations, because they are what's called dispatchable. They can run all the time and they can generate stacks of electricity, and then you don't need wind and solar. And what is now interesting is that in the UK, we have estimated recently that building um, small but uh, efficient nuclear reactors to pre-existing designs, the can-do reactor from Canada is still one of the best, actually, very robust and reliable. And if you build those, and you build lots of them, not too big, don't build the mega-mega projects, build them kind of little ones, one for each town, and you roll them out fast, as the French originally did with their nuclear reactors, you can generate nuclear electricity cheaper than with offshore windmills. And much more reliably. And for much longer, because the windmills, they only last 10 or 15 years, and you've got to tear them down and do it all again. And you can't recycle any of the bits. You've got to go and dig up some more cobalt and some more vanadium. Supposing you wanted to have battery backup for... Uh, wind and solar generating uh, the entire world's electricity except for, say, shall we say, 30 or 40% of it nuclear. That's a lot of battery acid. Let's, let me tell you what happens then. You would need, according to uh, Professor Simon Michaud of Geologia and Tutkimus Cescus, 
which is the Finnish Geological Survey, as I'm sure all of your readers already know, um, that he has done a thousand-page paper in which he sat down and began calculating this, and the left in his university were so angry, they kept on saying, oh, you haven't allowed for this factor or that factor, and so the paper got longer and longer, it became a thousand pages. And it is the definitive statement of how much of what are called techno-metals that you need to have if you want to go completely... Uh, wind and solar, plus about 30-40% nuclear, uh, over the time between now and 2050 to get to net zero emissions. And you would need 9,500 years' worth of the entire 2019 global annual production of lithium just for one 15-year generation of totally net zero technology. You would need... 27,000 years' worth of cobalt. So imagine all the extra cobalt slave children that are going to be needed to get the cobalt for this. Of course, the Greens don't care about that. They are all anti-slavery, except if it's going to get cobalt for their mobile phones, and then it's fine. Let the children get on with it. Good for them. You know, this Not terrible, cynical... You know, no, I mean, as, as a health... You, you would be appalled at the conditions in the cobalt mines of the Congo. I mean, it's quite frightening. We... Uh, have a, a team out there from the Knights of Malta, and they're, they're, they are uh, they operate in 160 countries, doing charitable stuff. And uh, the the former Grand Master was out there driving diggers to build a road to the airport there, so that they could get people out to, who were sick and fl flown to hospital. <laughs> and they're the wonderful people. And you know, the cobalt mines are an absolute disgrace. I mean, it is slave labour in the most appalling. Uh, conditions, none of which would comply with you have the word safety on your on your t-shirt there. Right. You, if you haven't got your radio in colour, you won't be able to see that. But it says safety, and there's no safety about it. There's no health about it, and they're not paid. They are slave children, and so you hear all the left wittering on about slavery and therefore white privilege, this, that, and the other. Of course, slavery was never anything to do with white against black. Black against black slavery was a much bigger problem and went on for many more centuries than anything we ever caused. But, of course, uh, it's not fashionable to say any of that now. But if you were to try and get enough cobalt, 27,000 years of the total 2019 production, vanadium is the real biggie. You need that for the static battery backup. You would need 67,000 years' worth of the total annual production. And... That's just for the first 15 years. That would get you maybe to 2050 because it will take you time to build up the, the infrastructure. Then it all starts falling apart. It's not like a coal-fired power station. You build it and you can go on you know, tweaking it and retrofitting it and improving it for nearly a century before you finally have to tear it down. You have to tear it down after 10 or 15 years. And he says 15 is the absolute maximum, after which you've got to do it all again. You've got to find another 67,000 years' worth of vanadium and 9,500 years' worth of lithium. Where the heck is it going to come from? We've only got one planet, guys. And so none of this has been thought through, or has it? This is where one comes back to this campaign of communist-led um, disinformation it's actually the longest and most successful campaign of psychological warfare ever organized by one political system against another. And the Russian word for it is maskirovka. And this is known as 
deception in the pursuit of the objectives of warfare, which is what psychological warfare is. Right. So all worship, all warfare is deception. Is deception, exactly that. And, and so they've inherited this from Sun Tzu. They, they found this thing in the records of, of Dr. Goebbels' Reich's propaganda ministry. Uh, you destroy the reputations of your opponents and then you would easily roll over them and take everything over. That's what they're doing to us climate skeptics. That's why they said, oh, you're not a real lord and so we're going to tell the world that and nobody's going to take you seriously thereafter. And it failed and they can't understand why it failed. And it, it failed simply because what my team has been doing as I hope you will have been able to tell yes. from this broadcast, is a great deal of scientific and economic research. And I leave you with one really useful figure that you may like to have, which is right. suppose the whole of the world were to follow the policy of the British and American governments and go directly in a straight line from where we are now, bit by bit, towards net zero emissions of carbon dioxide, not just on the grid, but in the whole country, uh, by 2050... If the whole world did that, which it won't, of course, because three-quarters of the planet is exempt from any obligation to do so under the Paris Agreement, because India, China, Pakistan, Russia, all communist countries, have all managed to get themselves counted as developing countries, which is a bit of a stretch in the case of China and Russia, I would think. Yeah. Um, they are not only exempt from all this, but Pakistan has announced a quadrupling of its entire coal-fired capacity just this week. China announced early last year it was going to build 43 new coal-fired power stations over the next 10 years. Uh, China has now announced it's actually going to be more like doubling its total coal-fired generating capacity. So the world is not going to get to net zero. No way. But let's pretend. Let's bend all the arguments as far as we can in favour of the establishment that, you know, the president of the MCC who said that, you know, how could you possibly think that you're right and all these people are wrong? Well, you know, I've sweated the numbers and they haven't. If you, if you don't count how many beans make five, how do you know how many beans are in the bag? No good saying, well, there's a consensus about it. If you can't see into the bag, that's valueless to you. You've got to go in and count them. So we've done that. And if you were to get the whole world to move together towards net zero, which you would have to do if you really thought this was a problem, then the amount of warming you would forestall by 2050 at a cost of $800 trillion would be 0.2 Celsius degrees. So way less than one millionth of a Celsius degree for every billion dollars you spend on trying to make global warming go away. And that, sir is the worst value for money in the long and shoddy history of government economics throughout the world. And with that, I think we could conclude the interview here. I really appreciate you coming on the program. I really appreciate your point of view uh, on everything. And you made it in basically a little bit over an hour. You put the whole debate, I think, to rest here on the whole climate change issue. I wanted to thank you, Miss, uh, Mr. <laughs> Christopher exactly. uh for your time here, and this has really been a pleasure for me. Well, it's been great fun, and I hope that those of you who have been kind enough to listen through this hour will have picked up a few pointers so that when you start talking to your politicians, you, you ask them that question. I was in the House of Commons the other day, and I asked a question to an MP there. I said, uh, so, okay... 
you're a true believer in the whole climate nonsense. Oh, yes, we've got to persuade Russia and China to follow our leadership. I said, good luck with that. I've briefed the leaderships in both countries. They know perfectly well this is all nonsense. So, so that won't get you very far. But I said, I'll ask you that question. How much global warming would be reduced if the whole world actually followed the British government's policy, as you are saying you want it to do? And his face immediately put on the mask of terror because he realised he should have asked that question. He had no idea what the answer this, was. Yeah, but this information has been out there since I was, I've been involved with this since about 1986 or 1987 mm. when I was in high school. That information has been out there long before, with all due respect, yeah. with all, long before you came up with the actual calculations and yeah. everything. And yeah. so they've known for 40 years that this is all the costs and benefits are all completely out of whack. Actually, they, they haven't known because we've needed to get 30 years of really reliable data right. on the basis of which you can do this definitively. Yes. And so when which I is, did this yeah, calculation, which, which I did it by a very, very simple and uh, I would say irrefutable method, yes. um, there is no answer. What's interesting is that every penny of the trillions that have already been spent in Western countries only, shafting their own economies, kicking their workers in the teeth, yes. kicking their poor people in the teeth, driving all their businesses, particularly the energy-intensive and strategically important ones like steel-making for your tanks and your aircraft, overseas. Britain, we now can't make our own tanks and aircraft. We haven't got enough steel-making capacity because yes. we've driven it away because of the electricity prices. I if you do that... Yeah. then you destroy your economy and you get nothing in return. And so far, all of that spending and all of that agony and the jobs destroyed and the industries destroyed and the, the imminent bankruptcy of Britain and several other Western countries is a direct result and a primary result of their climate change policies. So far, the trend in how much radiative forcing the anthropogenic emissions of all the greenhouse gases have caused, which is kept by NOAA as its AGGI, its annual greenhouse gas index, has continued upwards in an absolutely straight line, and it has not begun to tail off in any degree whatsoever. Everything we've spent so far has had zero effect. So ask your politicians, well, if we spend even more, why should we expect there to be anything other than more zero effect and, of course, you bankrupt the economy completely. Yeah. Thank, Thank you very much. much. Bless you. Sir. And uh, we'll be broadcasting this in the very near future. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.